Hello, you beautiful people. I'm Hi. Garrett. I'm Ashley. And this is the Dead Spot. We've been MIA. Um, I was dying of an illness. Yeah, we really fucked up spooky season, huh? <laughs> yeah, we literally missed the whole month of October. Yeah, well. Because we were busy and then I got, I got deathly ill. But I'm recovered, mostly, now. Yeah, mostly. So now we're going to start rolling out episodes. Yeah, so we're going to record this because, you know, like Carrie Underwood says in her song, we're waiting all day for Sunday night. Yep. So we just got... I don't know if, we, if we're allowed to say the name, but we have the mm, the channel that plays all the football games at once um, in the background. So if something why are happens, not to I'm say just it? I don't know because the NFL. Why don't you just say we have? Don't why? Because I don't want to get sued by the NFL. Why are we going to get sued? Because they're definitely going to listen to this. Probably not. But anyways, so it's been going on since the last time we uh, we've been here. Um, I'm trying to think. Matthew Perry died. Yeah, Matthew Perry, R.I.P. Yeah. Um, war. All in, the time. In uh, Gaza. Yeah. Um. We're not gonna talk about that. <laughs> yeah, we're not gonna talk about that because that's this is not a political podcast. Yeah, but um, war is bad. Oh, also, the guy who killed Natalie Holloway finally admitted that he killed her. Mm-hmm. So we might do an episode on that and talk about that more. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of true crime happening. One would say too much. Yeah. <laughs> That's how it goes. But we handed out candy on Halloween. Yeah, we got a little bit left. And they were coming from all sides. That's it? That's about it. So. So let's get started. Okay. All right, let's do that. All right, so today's story takes us to Atchison, Kansas. Founded in 1854, Atchison is approximately 8.5 square miles and is located near the Missouri River with a population of approximately 11,000 people and was named after U.S. Senator David Rice Atchison. Atchison is the birthplace of famous aviator Amelia Earhart. Oh. Negro League baseball player Oscar Johnson, who won a championship with the Kansas City Monarchs in 1924. Musician and songwriter Jesse Albert Stone, who is best known for writing Shake, Rattle, and Roll in 1954, which is ranked as number 127 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time list, as well as Paul Christoph Mangelsdorf, a botanist known for his research on the origins of maize. Cool. Mangelsdorf's work was amazing. Amazing. Sorry. I guess that joke was corny. <laughs> yep. Anyway, another feature of this small town in Kansas is the Sally House. The Sally House is located at 508 North 2nd Street and, according to Zillow, was built in 1890 and features three bedrooms, one full bathroom, a half bathroom, an unfinished basement, and a total interior livable area of 1,200 square feet. And from the outside is a relatively normal-looking house in just about any neighborhood in America. But it's not normal. It's not. 
So today we're talking about the Sally House. Yes, the Sally House. <laughs> the house was constructed for Dr. Michael C. Finney and his family, and they occupied the dwelling until 1947 with Dr. Finney operating his medical office on the first floor. One night in 1905, Dr. Finney was awakened in the middle of the night by a knock at his door. As he made his way... That's a knock. As he made his way down (laughs) to open the front door to see whom the heck it was, he was met by a desperate mother and her young daughter in excruciating pain, complaining complaining of a fever and severe tummy pains. Sounds like diarrhea or the flu. Well... The young girl collapsed in agony, and Dr. Finney ran a couple quick tests and diagnosed that her little appendix was about to burst. Oh, no. So he needed to operate and get that thing out immediately. Get that thing out? Get that thing out. So there are two versions of this origin story, so choose your own adventure. The first version states that the mother and daughter were simply desperate for medical attention in the middle of the night and without any mode of transportation to get to a hospital, knew of Dr. Finney's office, and just went right over. But the alternate version states that Dr. Finney had an affair with this woman, a black housemaid, and her daughter was Dr. Finney's illegitimate daughter. So she brought her to him, demanding he help. For fear of their extracurricular secrets getting out, he refused to take them to a hospital and opted to perform the procedure in his office instead. What year is this? 1905. While in a rush to operate on the girl... He had given her a liquid anesthetic so she could go to sleep and he could do what he's got to do. So now that she's out, he begins the operation, cutting into her abdomen with a scalpel. 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 As he's performing the procedure, his eyes met hers. Dr. Finney had given her an improper amount of anesthetic. Wait, so she was awake? Didn't give her enough time to soak it all in, and she was still awake. Oh, okay. So he didn't even check to make sure she was asleep. Perfect. So as Dr. Finney continued cutting into her abdomen, the young girl felt everything. Oh my god, that's like my worst nightmare. If like I have to get a surgery, like like when I like when I got my wisdom teeth out, I'm pretty sure I woke up during it because I remember waking up. And they were like, oh, my God, she's waking up. And I was like, oh, great. They're not done yet. Yeah, there's a movie about it called Awake. Yeah, I think I saw that. 2000s with, uh, what's his name? That the, guy from uh, Star Wars. Yeah, Hayden Christensen. Yeah. Yeah. Where he's awake during surgery. Mm-hmm. It's called Awake. Yeah. All right. Screaming in pain and writhing in pain on the table as Dr. Finney continued with the operation, she eventually bled out and died. Jesus Christ. So depending upon which origin you'd like to believe, Dr. Finney had either been trying to help this young girl and just fucked up really bad, or intentionally killed her during the operation to keep his extramarital affairs a secret by murdering her and her mother, goes the story. Her mother died too? That's the alternate version of the story, so... But either way... Either way, it's fucked up. The young girl was dead. So, fast forward to the 1990s when the home was rented by Deborah and Tony Pickman, a newlywed couple with a baby on the way. All right, so for the happenings within the house that we're going to discuss a little bit, I mostly reference uh, Deborah's book, which is called An American Haunting, I believe. Get it on Amazon? Yeah, you can get it anywhere. Well, but, the library. No, I think we checked the library and they didn't have it. But it's linked in the notes, so. Check it out. It kind of follows along with 
like the, the timeline of her book and everything, but I intentionally left some things out, so you will hopefully just go read it like a good person. Mm. Oh, yeah, which for the record, write it, write it down that I had to read a book this time for I this one. I can't believe you read a book. Because, you know, <laughs> it's from her first-hand account, so I figured it was it's worthwhile. So it was worthwhile to read this book, so. Anyways, Tony Pickman grew up near Atchison while Deborah was born in Buffalo, New York. Deborah always had an interest in the paranormal, while Tony was raised in a devoutly Catholic household. When they met, Deborah was nearing the end of a deteriorating marriage, and Tony was on the tail end of a bad relationship of his own. They both visited the same bar frequently and eventually got to talking. The stars aligned, they became inseparable, and they soon married at the local courthouse in November of 1992. And they fell in love. Oh, yeah. Deep. Deep. Tony and Deborah, three months pregnant at the time, are looking for a place to settle down and start their life as a family. After visiting a few places that were less than great, Tony's brother stepped in with a lead. Just two blocks from the Missouri River, a rental house recently purchased by a local police officer was in need of tenants, although he had only owned it for a month before they checked it out. While the outside could use some repairs... Luckily, the interior recently had some fresh coats of paint and plenty of room for their little family, as well as their three cats and one dog, so they decided this would become their home and moved in on New Year's Eve, 1992. Some strange happenings began in early 1993, just several weeks after they made this house their home. Yeah, let's talk about the spooky stuff. It was their first Valentine's Day in their new home, and Tony went all out by presenting Deborah with a large heart he had made with a poem in the center and followed it up with a home-cooked Italian meal. That's cute. While this sounds like it has the makings of a Nicholas Sparks novel, (laughs) this would be one of the final quiet, peaceful nights they would have here. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. The activity started small. While snuggled up on the couch watching TV... Their overhead light would slowly dim and remain dimmed for several minutes before it suddenly shined at maximum brightness, as if the light were on a dimmer switch, which it was not. This continued for several days before they thought it might be some shoddy electrical wiring, so they called an electrician to take a look, but he found nothing wrong with the wiring, at which point Tony joked, we must have a ghost. And boy, did they laugh. But that's not a joke. I always tell you I think we have a ghost. (laughs) Well, that's possible. I wouldn't laugh. I'd be like, I'm serious. <laughs> Nobody. Perhaps laughs. we have a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody laughs like that. <laughs> In the 90s, they did. Okay. Anyway. Anyway. Speaking of the previously mentioned fur babies, their dog named Sasha was a purebred Samoyed and was a very mild-mannered dog who loved playing with children and other animals. One night, before they had a chance to furnish what would become the baby's nursery in the room right at the top of the stairs, Tony was followed by Sasha to the threshold of the room, where they both stood staring into the empty canvas trying to cook up some ideas. After rattling his brain for a while, Tony walked away, but quickly returned as Sasha was barking her head off. See, you always trust the animals. Oh, yeah. It's like when something bad's going to happen, like the birds all start flying away. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. Like, you always trust birds, and then you always trust animals. Like, if they're staring into the darkness, you know, like, something's there that you can't see. When Tony found Sasha, still in front of the same room, she was growling and baring her teeth as she was focused on something inside of the empty room, seemingly feeling something threatening. 
This behavior continued for about a week or so until she seemingly no longer perceived whatever was there as no longer a threat to her or the family. So, she saw something, but the humans couldn't. And she's like, yo, 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 yo. Like, that's what the barking was, you know? Yeah. Yo, yo, hey. Okay. Hey. Look, hey. Get out of here. Anyway. Deborah would also experience sudden cold spots when walking up the stairs. They had one window air conditioner unit in their main bedroom, but there was no way that a draft of that cool air would have made it to the staircase, let alone feel suddenly almost 40 degrees colder along the wall. Yikes. In late June, Deborah was in the kitchen baking a cake in the used oven they recently purchased and set the timer for 12 minutes. When she glanced at the timer one minute later, it was down to four minutes. As she continued wiping the counter, she glanced over again. 14 minutes. So she just said fuck it and bought her own timer since something was up with this one. It's a secondhand stove, so who knows? True. Could just be broken. Maybe, but no. But probably not. No. But the next day, while she was relaxing in the living room, she was suddenly startled by a buzzing noise coming from the kitchen. No way. When she went to investigate the source of the buzzing, Deborah found that it was the stove timer. As she stared at it, bewildered, knowing she hadn't set the timer or even turned the oven on, the buzzer stopped itself after about one minute. I'd be like, we gotta get the fuck out of here. And then it happened again the next day. The first handful of times she would get up to turn it off, but it would keep happening, and eventually she just gave up. Did she just, like, take the batteries out? She just stopped answering it. She just let it... She just let it happen? Yeah, she's like, oh, there's the fucking timer again. Because, like, (laughs) people would come over and be like, yo, your thing's buzzing. She's like, yeah, Yeah, I know. Again. Don't worry about it. On June 26, 1993, Deborah gave birth to their little baby boy, Taylor, and soon brought him home. Contrary to doctor's orders of seven days of bed rest... Deborah convinced Tony to let her paint the nursery and finish decorating so their little baby boy could move in. They decided to split the room colors evenly between pale pink and baby blue. One day while painting, Deborah heard the phone ring in the other room and went to answer it. As you do. While she was on the phone with her sister Karen, Deborah eventually walked into the nursery with the phone in hand. The line suddenly went dead. Confused, she backed out of the room into the hallway and heard her sister's voice calling out, Hello? Hello, are you there? Hello? Well, that was weird, huh? The conversation continues, and Deborah gets lost in the conversation and steps over the threshold to the nursery without even thinking about it. The line went dead again. Never having a problem with the phone before or since, Deborah was led to believe that something in that room was causing the interference. That's spooky. Yeah. As they were trying to adjust Taylor to life outside of the womb... He would often sleep mostly during the day and awaken at night. His sleep schedule wouldn't straighten out and Deborah and Tony were exhausted, so they asked their family and friends for any advice. Lending a helping hand was Deborah's sister Karen, who had also become a new mother 18 months prior, and she had offered to stay with them and help take care of Taylor, who was three weeks old at the time, so they could catch up on some rest. Thanks to Karen, Deb and Tony were able to get two full nights of sleep which was desperately needed. Feeling refreshed and rejuvenated, the Pickmans decided to let their baby boy sleep in their room and take back responsibility of his nighttime feedings. So thanks for stopping by, Karen. Thanks, Karen. At the end of Karen's stay, 
Tony's sister-in-law, Jeannie, stopped by to drop off a high chair while no one was home. And she went to check out the nursery before she went to link up with Tony and Deborah at Tony's parents' house. After a long day of hanging with the fam, they arrived home around 10 p.m. that night. As Taylor was sleeping in his car seat, they wanted to let him keep sleeping, so they just took the car seat out of the car and set him down inside while they began to unpack the car. Not sure how long the drive was, but Tony had to use the bathroom. So he went upstairs, because that's where the bathroom was. <laughs> when Tony came back downstairs, he asked Deborah if she had arranged the stuffed bears in the nursery, how he had seen them when he had glanced in there. She told him that she finished decorating by placing some stuffed animals all around the room, as one usually might do with a baby's room, but was confused as to what he had meant. So Deborah, Tony, and Karen go upstairs to check out the scene. On the floor, in the middle of the room, the stuffed animals were arranged on the floor in a circular pattern with their backs to each other. Oh, no. Mm-mm. Now, they hadn't usually locked their front door at this time for whatever reason, but it was the 90s, it was the 90s. in a small town <laughs> in Kansas. Um, and Tony's brother, George, lived right next door. So they thought maybe he pulled a little prank and let himself in to do this while they were out that day. They also know that Jeannie had been there earlier in the day. But she did feel guilty for letting herself in and checking the place out, so they concluded that she had no part in it. Jeannie had even told them that while she was in there, that nothing was out of place. But she did also mention to Deborah that while she was walking up the stairs to view the nursery, she was hit with a huge spot of coldness and felt uneasy. It's a ghost. Now, obviously bewildered and failing to find a conclusion as to how this happened, Tony, Karen, and Deborah simply returned the plushies back to their respective shelves, shut off the light, and walked back downstairs. When they got back to the bottom of the stairs, Karen glanced back up at the nursery. In a loud, monotone voice, she said, The light in the nursery is back on. I'd be like, we gotta get out of here. She asked Tony if he had turned the light back on, but if you've been paying attention to this point, of course he didn't. Of course not. So again, back up the stairs to see what the heck is going on up there. What the hell? A singular small bear that was usually seated in a tiny little wicker chair was lying face up in the middle of the floor. I don't like this. Well, they didn't either. Confused, Tony picked up the bear and returned him to his little chair. Shut the light off, and the three of them walked downstairs again. Like, why are they just picking this stuff up so casual? Because they're like, huh, that's weird. Whatever. Like, I'd be freaking out. It's been a long day. They're sick of this shit, so they're just like, please stop. Glancing back up once more, the light had stayed off this time. I thought you were going to tell me the light was on again. It's called suspense. Suspense. Later that night, before getting ready for bed, Deborah went up to use the bathroom, while Tony and Karen waited at the foot of the stairs because of the crazy shit that happened earlier. Curious, Deborah peeked into the nursery. In a low voice, she spoke out to Karen and Tony. The bear is on the floor again. Oh, my God. I'd be like, we got to go. I'm not doing this shit. Tony and Karen rushed up the stairs to find exactly what Deborah was looking at. The same wicker chair bear was lying on the floor, face up, just like it was before. No. 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 So now, as you mentioned, they're like, yo, what the fuck? So they check for strings or magnets or hidden cameras, expecting Ashton Kutcher to pop out and tell them that they're being punked, even though punk didn't exist yet. I was going to say, I don't think that was a show yet. Any evidence of some sort of physical prank, but none were found. Oof. So now they got to get to the bottom of this, and they call over Tony's brother Larry 
to discuss what had happened earlier that night. Larry took some convincing as he thought they were pulling his leg, but eventually he relented and showed up around 11.20 that night. So Larry's the skeptic in this situation. There's always one. They led Larry upstairs to show him the bear lying on the floor, explained everything they just dealt with, and he wasn't convinced. He offered some obvious possible explanations. Did the cats knock it over? Was a window open? Did somebody come in and do that? No, no, and no. Larry. No, Larry. At this point, nothing else had happened, and he was convinced they were just fucking with him, so they all returned to the living room for a bit of respite before Larry took off. Are we going crazy? They surely asked of themselves. But just then, Tony noticed a small beanie baby type bear he had gotten for Deborah as a Christmas gift the year before seated next to the TV. While the bear was not out of place, it's usually facing forward. But Tony pointed out that it was facing the wall. Oh, no. Mm -mm. They each took turns softly answering, Not me. When Larry asked if any of them turned it around, Larry's solution was to simply walk over, pick it up, and face it forward again. Duh. Obviously. Finally, sensing that Tony, Deborah, and Karen are genuinely searching for answers... Larry pushed aside his skepticism and mentioned that his boss's sister, Barbara, is a psychic because, of course. Of course. (laughs) So his boss's sister, Barbara, was named Barbara Connors. Barbara Connors lived in California but grew up in the area and was set to make a visit soon. Larry said he would talk to his boss about it and would talk to them tomorrow as he went out the front door and closed it behind him. So it's now 1.35 a.m., and they all decided that instead of sleeping separately, they'd all set up camp together in the master bedroom where they could lock the door. Because we all know (laughs) ghosts can't unlock doors. No, they can't. But they forgot to bring the TV and VCR upstairs from the living room because it's 1993, so they could watch movies that they rented. Another trip downstairs. Karen and Tony go down to retrieve the cumbersome equipment. Karen grabs the VCR and tapes. Tony with the TV and cords. I'm not sure how big the TV was, but again, it was 1993, and them tube TVs are heavy as shit at any size. Mm-hmm. As they made their way towards the stairs, Tony saw something move quickly out of the corner of his eye where the TV previously was. Obviously startled, Tony and Karen rushed up the stairs and burst into the bedroom to Deborah's surprise. They eventually settled in to watch one of the three movies they rented. Ironically, Two of the films they rented were horror films. Oh, God. But for obvious reasons, they opted to watch the third tape they rented, which luckily was a comedy. Although she didn't mention in her book which movies they were, so I can't tell you. Tony then has a phone call with his mother and tells her what happened that night. After a few moments of silence, she mentions that she knows the former tenants of the home, and she'll talk to them to find out if they ever experienced anything similar. Because, again, of course... Like, why wouldn't she know the people who used to live there? Of course she would. Tony's mother reached out to her acquaintance, who happened to be the mother of the previous tenant. The woman's daughter mentioned she would often smell strange, foul odors throughout the home, and that the current nursery used to be her son's room. She would constantly be picking up his toys, blaming him for making the mess while he'd tell her each time that he hadn't been playing with them. The woman's daughter had an imaginary friend, whom she'd play with for hours, in the closet. Oh, no. Mm-mm. The girl told her mother that her imaginary friend's name was Sally. While on the topic of making phone calls, Larry called back and his boss, Annie, had called her psychic sister, Barbara, 
and relayed some info to her. Barbara's response, based on the second-hand information she was given, was that she felt as if the spirit was that of a young girl between 5 and 13 years old who felt comfortable in the home and was also protecting the baby. Oh. Well, I mean, I guess that's good, right? You would think so. Oh, God. So it's not good? No, it's good. I mean, protecting the baby? Well... Like, that's free babysitting. Okay, but not really. Kind of. Being the age of a child, that would also explain the movement of the teddy bears as she was potentially playing with them as a living human child would. Barbara had also mentioned one last bit of info that Larry passed on to Deborah. The spirit's name was Sally. Okay. There's no way for her to know that. Psychic. Hmm. Deborah took all of this info into consideration and figured that the previous tenant's daughter was playing with a ghost, which is what I figure is what most imaginary friends usually tend to be. Deborah also wondered if this spirit was the reason Taylor was awakened so often in the middle of the night. Was this little girl waking the baby to keep him from succumbing to SIDS? Was she making sure he was breathing in the middle of the night? Deborah took solace in the theory that their spirit was a protector of their newborn child. Okay. Yeah. So she's like, maybe that's why he keeps waking up, because this little little ghost girl is like, hey, you got to breathe, you know, to keep him alive. I mean, that's good. I mean, it's annoying that well, he keeps waking up, but good, I guess. Yeah. Old George stopped over. Wait, who's George? His brother. I thought his brother was Larry. He's got two brothers, at least. George okay, lives well, next you door. you should say, I thought Larry lived next door. George lives next door. So where does Larry live? I don't fucking know. Okay, well, you should say George is the one next door, because I'm pretty sure you said Larry lives next door. I didn't. I said George. Huh, okay. Well. Anyway, so George came over on the night of July 27, 1994, and Tony showed him around. George was waiting for Tony to confide in him that all of this haunting nonsense was just bullshit, but George received no such admission. Back in the living room, George still wasn't convinced, so Tony picked up the 35mm camera lying on the dining room table, pointed it towards the bear next to the TV, and said, Sally, if you're here, smile and say cheese, as he pressed the shutter and snapped a photo. George shouted, It moved! The goddamn thing moved! in pure excitement and shock as the bear turned once again as he saw it with his own eyes. And Tony quickly snapped a second photo before they both sprinted towards the stairs up to Deborah and the baby. While Tony's legs moved him as fast as they could, George's could not. He shouted out to Tony that he couldn't move as his face lost its color and he began to struggle breathing. No matter how hard he tried or thought about moving, he couldn't, as if something or someone was holding him in place. After a few moments, the weight relented, and he too ran upstairs to the bedroom. Yikes. So it sounds like Sally might be mad. Yeah, somebody, somebody's upset or with someone. this guy. Yeah. Is it Sally or someone else? I don't know. Hmm. At this point, they all decided that they should leave the house for the night and go to Tony's parents. No sooner were they all in agreement did they start packing their shit. George noped the fuck out the front door and paced around <laughs> the front yard, awaiting the other two, trying to compose himself. Thanks, George. Thanks for your help, bro. We'll see you in a minute. After gathering up some essential <laughs> supplies, snacks, food, fruit roll-ups. Hell yeah. Remember fruit roll-ups? <laughs> that's, that's my Pineapple Express uh, reference. Food, snacks, fruit roll-ups. Uh, we gotta get out of here. Never mind. I get it. Yeah. I just You quote Pineapple Express way more than anyone I know. Yeah, it's fine. 
Um, okay, so they gather up some essential supplies. Tony puts the baby in his car seat and took him out to the car to buckle him in. As he was doing so, Taylor began crying as he was awoken from his deep sleep. Tony also suddenly jumped up and reached towards his lower back as he yelled in pain. Ah! Probably, I don't know. Oh my God. And Deborah felt a rush of coldness and energy pass through her. Thinking he was bitten by a pesky little insect on the inside of his shirt, he regained his composure and focused back on the task at hand as they packed everything and everyone into the car and successfully made it to his parents' house. Oh, so they're mad. Someone's mad that they're leaving. As they told his parents about the night's events that led to them fleeing their place, Deborah remembered that Tony had been bitten by a bug and pulled him aside. She lifted his shirt and was horrified by what she had seen. This was no bug bite. What was it, like a scratch? Instead, Deborah was met with three bleeding scratch marks mm-hmm. about six inches long running down the center of his lower back. Thinking that Sally had done this, Deborah was pissed the fuck off. Who does this little shithead think she is attacking her husband? And for what? So she reached out to psychic Barbara for any help. Barbara explained to her that the spirit they've come to know as Sally is present because she's protecting the baby and she wants their attention. So she'll show it whenever and however she can. Barbara explains that they should treat Sally as they would any living child. Let her know that there are rules, and if she doesn't obey them, she'll be punished. With one such rule being, if you want to play with the toys, that's fine. Just put them back when you're done. Because, you know, we're done. We're sick of picking your shit up. Yeah. We're sick of picking up after you. Put your shit back where it came from. So basically, Barbara is just like, tell her she's welcome to stay with you. But if she upsets you, call her into the room and discipline her. Tell her what she did wrong and why you're upset. And everything should be smooth sailing. So that's what Deborah did moving forward. Can you imagine if you're just, like, standing in the middle of your house and you're like, Sally, listen. <laughs> well, that's what she would do. I mean, remember when I when you had to do that? Yeah. Well, that's what she was doing, and that's why this whole time she's kind of, like, into it. She's embracing it. She's, like, meaning Deborah, like, yeah. listening to the advice and stuff and talking to Sally and whatever, and Tony's just like, okay, whatever. <laughs> like, he was always very... What's the word you want to say? Hesitant, I guess, to, like, accept that there was a spirit of a girl living with them? Well, I mean, after he's been scratched, you would think he would believe it more. Yeah, but... So she's, like, embracing it, and he's like... That's an airplane, in case you can hear it. Yeah, I'm sure you can. Okay, so that's what Deborah did moving forward. She'd be speaking to Sally without knowing if she were even around, but at this point, what do they have to lose? Sally would then let them know she was present in a few less terrifying ways, including manipulating the pull strings on the ceiling fan to move in a repetitive circular motion, electrical interference, and setting fires. Oh, setting fires. That's casual. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Deborah decided to leave a notepad with some crayons in the nursery for Sally to use as a means of communication if she were able. On one sheet with a red crayon, Deborah wrote, Hi, Sally. How old are you? and left them in the corner of the room, announced that she could use the crayons, and wished her a good night. Now, for those of us who were living throughout the 90s, we used to have to take film from a camera to a store to get them developed. So finally, the roll that contained the pictures Tony snapped the other day were finally ready, and the photo he took came out very strange. The photo was blurry. Not a motion blur, as if, 
you know, he moved while he snapped the photo, but only the center of the image was blurry, while the outer edges were perfectly crisp and clear. Ooh, spooky. The blurry spot resembled a person's head and shoulders. Yikes. As if when Tony called out for Sally to say cheese, she was like, I bet, and got up close <laughs> to the camera. So Deborah felt the need to do some digging into the background of the home they were renting and was assisted by a friend of George who shared an interest in the paranormal and supplied her with some historical records. So earlier I said Zillow said it was built in 1890, but based on her findings, it was built in 1872 by the Finney family, who owned other lots of land near the home. The property stayed with the Finney family until 1946. The property changed hands several times until 1958, then mortgaged to two single women until 1991, and once more in 1992, one month before they moved in. While perusing other records, searching for any young girls named Sally associated with this home, long story short, came up empty, as they could not find any definitive record of any girl named Sally living or dying there. Hmm. However, there was someone named Sally Isabel Hall who lived and died nearby, but not at the home. Sally Isabel Hall's obituary from the Atchison Daily Globe, dated February 23, 1905, reads... Sally I. Hall. Colored. Their words. Colored? Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's 1905. It was their words. Ugh. Anyway. Sally I. Hall. Colored. Wife of Will Hall, who works at the Walters Brickyard, died this morning, and the funeral will occur Sunday at 2 p.m. from the 6th Street Baptist Church. Wait, so is this the little girl with the appendix? No, this is like a 34, 35-year-old woman. Oh. Hold on. Uh, she died this morning. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, right here. Mrs. Hall was only 34 years of age, but had given birth to 14 children within the past 16 years. God damn. All had died at birth, but three oh. girls and a boy who survived their mother. Maybe that's why she's protective of the baby, because all her kids passed. Maybe. The oldest is 16 and the youngest is two. A baby was born a week ago. Think of the suffering. Think of the tragedy crowded into one brief life. Every year, there has been a birth and a death at the house, and this year, there have been four deaths. An uncle at Christmas, a sister of Will Hall a few weeks ago, the baby a week ago, and now the mother. The family lives in the alley east of 2nd Street and adjoining Mound. That's... Wait, they live in an alley? Or like a house? Off the alley? It's like the location. It's not in the alley. It's in a, in a home. Oh. That's sad. Yeah. Also, that's a lot of kids to give birth to. God dang. So, could this woman be related to the source of the origin story? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Let's find out. Well. We don't know. It's kind of up to you. So, Uh do with that what you will. I mean, that would make sense if it was her because they said she's, like, super protective of the baby. Mm Mm-hmm. So, but, like, what if she thinks that's, like, her baby? And that's why she, like, scratched... Tony, when maybe. he was trying to leave, like, you're trying to steal my baby. Yeah, maybe. On July 29th, Barbara arrives for an in-person visit later that night. But before she does, Tony gets home from work, and George comes by with laundry to do. Why he couldn't do it at his place next door, I don't know. I was just going to say that, what, George can't do laundry at his own house? I guess not. As his load of clothes was finished, he went to take them out of the washer and walked past the bathroom door and out of the corner of his eye caught a glimpse of what he thought was a nightlight. There were two votive candles on top of the toilet tank. 
Votive candles are small candles intended to be burnt in an act of prayer, and both of the wicks of them were lit. Mm-hmm. So a votive candle is like your Keith Morrison candle up there? I know what a votive candle okay. is. Yeah. So we have a Keith Morrison one. Anyway, none of them had the opportunity or time to have snuck into the bathroom and light these candles, so as she was told, Deborah scolded Sally for lighting these candles and explained that fire is bad. So cut the shit. Barbara arrives and begins her walk through the house, feeling things out and assuring the spirit or spirits present that she meant no harm. Barbara, seemingly channeling Sally, told Deborah that she doesn't like how Deborah scolds her and says that there are too many rules for her to keep track of. George, being George, invited one of his friends named Rodney along for Barbara's visit, and at one point, he chimes in to ask her how old Sally is, and Barbara responds in a young, childish tone, I'm seven. What? So she's now Sally? Sally has possessed Barbara? She's speaking through her because she's a psychic medium. And she's like, I'm seven. So that's not the 35-year-old Sally? Guess not. Weird. Barbara then explains that it's possible that Sally is warmer towards Deborah because she's a woman and a mother. Barbara suggests that it might be possible that some male figure was abusive towards Sally and that men make her uneasy. Mm. Like, say, the doctor that basically murdered her? (gasps) So you think it is that girl now? Perhaps. The appendix one? Perhaps. That's what I thought at first. I mean, that would also explain why she would dislike men being well, yeah. in, the, in the place. Barbara, that happened at the same house, right? Yeah, it's in the same house. Barbara also suggested that they set aside an area for Sally's playthings. Whatever they decided would be her toys would be kept here, and she should be told that she can play with the toys, but would need to return them when she's done. Barbara also told them that they could set a place for Sally at their dinner table even though she can't physically eat or drink anything because she told them that she sits at the table with them while they ate dinner. Aww. Yeah, so. That's sad. Yeah, she just wants their attention. She just wants to be part of the fam. Yeah. Their neighbors Carol and Don came by with a couple baby dolls they wanted to offer as some toys for Sally, and Tony and George took them right up to the nursery to put them in the corner of the room. The spot where Sally's toys were to be kept, as Barbara told them, that's where Sally likes to chill. So she's got her own little corner in the room up there, and that's where they're going to keep her new toys. Not long after they went upstairs did they return to the group, dolls still in hand, asking if anyone had gone upstairs. Now what? Yeah, what now? Well, one of the bears had moved again. And something was also written on the notepad that Deborah left out for Sally to write on. Ooh, what did it say? Deborah went up to the nursery, speaking out loud to Sally to let her know about her two new toys she could play with before she focused her attention to the notepad. Reminder, Deborah had written, How old are you? in red. Crayon. Yeah. Underneath her question appeared a seven, along, alongside what looks like the word like. Written in green crayon. So Sally is telling her she's seven, as Barbara previously mentioned. The like might mean that she also likes that more people are coming to visit. Since it was written in green, that might also suggest that green was her favorite color. Hmm. Not wanting her child ghost to play with old, dirty toys from her neighbors, she cleaned them up for her and also outfitted the little naked doll with a dress before she snapped a few pictures to finish the camera roll. So once those were developed... She looked at those photos and was shocked by what she had seen. 
one photo she took of Sally's Corner with her new dolls. Everything was relatively normal, aside from a giant, semi-transparent, dark swirl in the center of the photograph in front of the dolls. Yeah, it's Sally. Another photo was of Taylor's crib with a similar but smaller swirl, almost in the shape of a teddy bear. A few other photographs taken the same night featured similar mist-like formations and streaks of light, which she had first thought and hoped were merely errors while developing, but these anomalies only appeared in these handful of pics. So, a little more than a coincidence, or a printing error, developing error, whatever you want to call Mm-hmm. One morning in September, an unfortunate and disturbing event occurred. I guess I could offer a bit of a trigger, but I won't tell you what. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> it would ruin the surprise. Anyways, Deborah's work schedule had her working during the morning while Tony worked overnights. Deborah started a load of laundry and tossed the clothes into the dryer while she went to shower before work. She then came back down to grab a few items she needed from the dryer and left the rest inside as she was running late. Once Tony woke up from his slumber in the early afternoon, he noticed that some of the clothes were still damp. So he shoved them back in and started the dryer up when he suddenly heard a strange noise. Something was making loud thumps. (gasps) Oh my god, don't even tell me the baby's in the dryer. I'm not going to be able to handle it. Tony just thought that Deborah must have put a pair of sneakers in the dryer and continued on with his day. He turned on the stereo to start bumping some tunes oh my God. and goes to retrieve the vacuum from the closet to do some light housekeeping. As he stepped away from the stereo, it shut itself off. So he turns it back on, steps away, and it turns off again. After playing this game several times, similar to Deborah with the stove, he says, fuck it, and leaves it off. Tony plugs in the vacuum, and just like the stereo, it shut itself off. On, off, on, off, on, off. He called out for Sally to cut the shit, and he was able to finally vacuum the downstairs. Deborah returned home from work later that day, and Tony filled her in about the stereo and the vacuum, as well as a strange thumping sound. Deborah was confused, as she knew that she definitely hadn't put a pair of sneakers in the dryer that day, so she goes to empty the clothes out of the dryer. As she begins pulling items of clothing, she notices strange brown spots on them. Unsure and unsure and confused as to what caused this, she kept them in a separate pile from the seemingly unaffected items. Item after item. What the heck is this? Did someone leave a pen in their pocket? Was this was that what was causing these stains? But then she realized that the brown spots were dried spots of blood. Deborah stared in horror as she realized that their small kitten had climbed into the dryer to lay amongst the warm clothes without Tony noticing a thing before he started the 90-minute drying cycle. So the cat climbed in the dryer. Yeah, and Sally was like, bro, go back to the dryer. Was Sally trying to warn Tony that something was wrong? Yeah, that's what I got out of it. Was she trying to get his attention by shutting off the stereo and vacuum? If she could manipulate electronic devices, why couldn't she just shut down the dryer? Was the electrical current of the dryer too difficult for her to manipulate? Deborah was plagued with all of these questions while she grieved this tragic accident. I mean, I really thought it was going to be the baby, so thank God it wasn't that. Oh, yeah. No, just a different kind of baby. <sighs> that's, that's sad. Yep. So, sorry, guys. Anyway, on October 31st, 1993, Halloween. Halloween. Samhain. 
even though it's spelled Samhain, but it's pronounced Samhain for some reason. Anyway, the period of time when the veil between the living and spirit world is believed to be the thinnest. Yep. Because spooky season, which again, we definitely fucked that up. Which we missed, so sorry. I mean, we did stuff, but we just didn't talk to you during that whole time. I mean, we didn't really do that much stuff. Yeah. I mean, we did stuff because we were busy, but... Yeah, we visited Fort McHenry. <laughs> yeah. Then we watched The Purge Anarchy while the people in the house behind where we were staying were bumping tunes all night. Yep. Anyway. At 7.15 a.m., Tony was exhausted from working his overnight shift, as he usually would be, especially with all the ghostly extracurriculars, and he fancied himself a nice refreshing glass of orange juice before heading up to try and get some sleep. I'm not sure if he likes pulp or not. I hope not. I like the one that has some pulp. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Okay. This says pulp. <laughs> I like the one that says some pulp. Okay, Tony Soprano. Anyways. As he fills his glass, closed the container, and was about to raise the glass to his parched lips. Ew. <laughs> Why did you say it like that? Because they're parched. Ew, I don't like that. Lips. He turned around to find that he wasn't alone. Right there in the kitchen stood a little girl with big blue eyes and curly brown hair with a large fancy bow affixed at the top. She wore an old-fashioned dress with white lace and puffy sleeves. She stood there curious and motionless, staring at him. So he actually saw her? She was like an apparition? As he stood in shock and stared at this girl standing right in front of him, The glass slipped out of Tony's hand and crashed to the floor. When he looked down at the mess he had just inadvertently made out of terror, he looked back up and the girl was gone. So, yeah. It was Sally. She's like, sup? Once again, he ran up the the fucking stairs to go burst into the door. Oh, that's always a solution. Just run up the stairs. Just like Kramer busting through the door in Seinfeld. Mm -hmm. He burst through the bedroom door, gasping for breath, telling Deborah, I saw her. God damn it, Deborah, I saw her. Before his legs gave out and he collapsed to the floor with his upper half lying on the bed. Who? Deborah asked. Sally. What did she look like? She's cute as hell, he said. Aww. <laughs> he said Barbara was right. She's cute as hell. Being a bit of an artist, Tony had to sketch out an image of the girl he had seen. Through shaky hands, he had done just that. Deborah then put the picture in a frame and placed it alongside other family photos in an effort to show Sally that they acknowledged her and considered her to be part of their family. Again, the regular activity would continue. The swinging ceiling fan balls, candles mysteriously being lit, electronic toys playing music, baby binkies going missing, and even their TV remote. Getting real tired of the fire bullshit... Deborah spoke out to Sally and told her to stop setting these goddamn open flames everywhere. Yeah, Sally, what the heck? And instead suggested that she light the oil lamp on the table as the flame was contained of a glass bulb so it would keep the flame under control and she would indeed use this oil lamp several times. Hello, Mr. Motorcycle Man. Can you stop? (laughs) All right. One night while lounging in the living room, they couldn't find the remote for their brand-new, state-of-the-art, 19-inch tube TV. They were both confused as to where it could have gone. They were perplexed as Tony drifted off into his sleep. 
Conceding the search, Tony fell asleep on the couch, as he often would, underneath a blanket. Same, Tony. Deborah went upstairs to take a bath, and when she came back, she noticed the TV remote resting atop Tony's thigh as he slept. When he rolled over and the remote dropped, he woke up, and they began questioning each other where they had found it. But each of them assured the other that they didn't know. Sally was like, tee He told her he felt a hand on his shoulder and heard a woman's voice say, Tony, here's your remote. But again, Deborah promised him that she had not done it. Great. So now they have the spirit of an older woman, too? Sheesh. Oh, it's like a different lady? Sheesh. Maybe it's like Sally's mom. Yeah, a woman's voice, not a girl's voice. Yeah, maybe it's Sally's mom. Or the adult Sally. Yeah, the 35-year-old one. Meanwhile, Barbara continued touring around, giving her lectures, and incorporated the Pikmin story into her presentations, as well as their photographs. Eventually, this garnered the attention of some television programs, including Unsolved Mysteries and a show called Sightings, both of whom reached out to Barbara to ask if they could get a hold of the Pikmins. Deborah and Tony had argued about whether or not it would be a good idea to allow a camera crew into their home. Tony's main concern was that they would be made to look like fools or fakes and ruin their reputation amongst their neighborhood as well as their family and friends. I would just be worried that, like, Sally and adult Sally would be, like, pissed. Yeah. And then I'd be like, mm, no, we're not going to do that because, like, they're friendly now, but I don't want to piss them off. Oh, sure. That'll, that'll happen. But eventually, Tony relented and agreed to allow the sightings crew to come in as long as his face and identity would be kept hidden. When the sightings crew showed up, they agreed to conceal the identities of Tony, their home address, and the town they lived in. The crew consisted of only three people and minimal equipment, and they soon began rolling the cameras. So real quick, the year is 1994. While Unsolved Mysteries was probably the most popular true crime type TV show at the time, this was well before the oversaturation of paranormal shows like Ghost Hunters, Ghost Adventures, and the countless others that have popped up since so there wasn't really a market to produce ghost hunting shows. They were simply here to document these strange happenings and get insight as to the Pikmin's experiences from their own accounts. Soon after the crew began documenting the family, Tony said, Deb, I don't think she likes everyone here. See, that's what I was saying. As he was sitting and holding Taylor in another room while they began to interview Deborah, The camera turned his way and he described a cold feeling passing over him as bloody scratches began to appear on his left forearm. Yikes. The same arm he was holding the baby with. They agreed to pause on filming until Barbara arrived, and as soon as she walked in the door, filming resumed. She's excited, Barbara told the crew as she made her way through the home. I like it, but it's scary, Sally seemingly spoke through Barbara. Tony was up next for his interview, and per his request and their agreement, the crew set him up in front of the windows to create a silhouette as to hide his face, but he quickly lost his train of thought and told them that he had felt the familiar coldness around his midsection as he lost his breath. Tony lifted his shirt, and to the surprise of the crew, more scratches, straight down the center of his stomach. Filming wrapped around 11 p.m. that night, and the entire experience was overwhelming, but they would resume the next day. This time, sightings brought in investigator Howard Heim, who brought his own equipment, including a temperature gauge and an EMF detector. This day was exceptionally hot. The outside temperature, coupled with the amount of people inside and the air conditioners needing to be turned off for audio purposes, the home should have stayed sticky and hot, but Howard would note the decreasing changes in temperature. As they walked through with Howard, 
they experienced more cold spots, but when they mentioned the previous night's attack on Tony, it suddenly grabbed his attention. They sat Tony down once more and affixed the camera on his gut as Howard examined the scratches with a magnifying glass as he suddenly exclaimed, Look! One's starting to bleed! While they thought the existing scratch was the one starting to bleed, it was a brand new one. They watched as the welt formed and the camera rolled for nine continuous minutes. Okay, clearly someone's pissed, so I'd be like, we gotta stop. This bit of footage is considered to be groundbreaking as it's the first documented paranormal activity caught in action on camera. Ever? Ever. The first visit with sightings had come to an end, but they soon after requested a second visit. I'd be like, no, dude. You saw what happened the first time. So again, the Pickmans argued about it back and forth, weighing the pros and cons. And four days before the second visit was set to take place, Tony was afraid of being embarrassed and the possible effect it would have on the family, and he felt his anger rising, so he left the house. Just as he closed the door, an extremely loud static noise blared out of the baby monitor for about 30 seconds. Was Sally upset that Mommy and Daddy were arguing? Maybe. Strange. Eventually, Tony returned, and so did the baby monitor static. But upon their own inspection, found nothing out of the ordinary to cause the noise. Sightings showed up for their second visit with one addition to the crew, host Tim White, who was intrigued by the happenings and almost never joined the crew in the field previously. More cold spots, feelings of electrical charges, and again... More scratches on Tony's arm. Oh, Tony's like, "Mm, I don't want to be embarrassed, but he's not like, I'm being attacked by this ghost. Yeah. Like, that's not your, that'd be my first concern. I'd be like, I'm being attacked. Yeah, he's like, yo, I'm, 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 I don't know. But like, why is just Tony being attacked? Not sure. Investigator Al Robber was also present this time and was to put it bluntly an asshole. He tried to offer suggestions as to what could explain certain happenings, but didn't check out, and even talked to Deborah and Tony separately, suggesting that the other was responsible for creating the activity. Also, without any ounce of logical reasoning, mentioned that maybe one of them had been molested as a child, which could have energized poltergeist activity. What? Yeah, so this guy was just being shitty. I'd be like, you can leave now. So, again, more of that same stuff as the first time, but... That concludes the second visit. But not long after part two aired on television, the Pickmans received a request for a third visit. Oh my god, I'd be like, no. Oi. Again, with the arguing and pleading and convincing, and again, they were in agreement that a third visit would be fine. Oh my god, I'd be like, no. This time, they would bring in psychic Peter James in an effort to finally get some closure and find the answers they've been looking for. I'd be like, actually, we're going to bring in our own psychic, our girl Barbara. Yeah, well, I mean, they did that, but just not on camera. So Yeah, I'd be like, okay, if you want a psychic, we're going to use my girl. Well, plus, you know, they want to bring people in that haven't been here before, you know, see what happens. So I guess these people are pissing me off. So after Tony left for work one day around 3 p.m., Deborah heard a knock at the door. Apologizing for the intrusion was a dark-haired woman named Colleen. This woman had previously rented the home for eight months and moved out a few months prior to the Pickman's arrival. Colleen mentioned that her daughter had an imaginary friend named Sally, and once they moved to another home, her daughter never mentioned her again. It was Colleen's story that convinced Tony this time for sightings to return, as they'd surely like to hear her testimony. So sightings arrives for the third time. 
Peter James was given very basic information, and as he stood outside, he pointed to an upstairs window where he had seen the face of a young girl in the window, but was confused as he was told there was only a baby boy that belonged to the family. Upon entry, he made his way around, reading the rooms in his own way, and audibly tried to sound out a word. Before he suddenly stopped and pointed to the top of the stairs, there's a little girl standing right there. He held out his hand to tell the cameraman to stop approaching, as he might have spooked whomever or whatever was at the top of the stairs. Deborah overheard Peter as he asked into the space upstairs, Hello? Can you speak to me? Sally, is that your name? As he slowly climbed the stairs. As Peter went upstairs, Colleen arrived for her on-camera interview and similar to Tony's request, was set up as a silhouette to keep her identity anonymous. She told the cameras about her five-year-old daughter's imaginary friend and that they'd play in the closet. She would scold her daughter for leaving her toys out, but would tell her that Sally did that. Sometimes her daughter would act out of character and tell her mother, Sally told me to do it. Peter was then joined by the others as he mentioned that outside of the master bedroom he felt a strong resistance. Something didn't want him to enter that room. Tony was feeling overwhelmed and began to pace the hallway before complaining of a stinging pain in his lower back. Oh my god, again. Can you guess what happened to Tony this time? He got scratched. As Tony lifted his shirt, on his back were more scratches. But these scratches were different. These scratches formed the letters M and C. That's weird. Oh yeah, that's that's suspicious. That's weird. As Peter was trying to comfort whatever was trying to keep him out of the master bedroom. Did I say comfort? Yeah, you said comfort. You mean confront? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Whatever. As Peter was trying to confront whatever was trying to keep him out of the master bedroom, he mentally asked who was in there, but all he was given as an answer was the letter B. B? B. Peter reported that three people died in the house. Michael C. Finney? In 1871, Michael C. MC on MC, the back. perhaps. Ooh. In 1871, James Finney in 1900, and Kate Finney in 1918. Third visit complete. There couldn't possibly a fourth visit, right? Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> this time, the plan was to try and document any occurrences using video cameras and electronic equipment. So basically, like your modern day... Paranormal shows. Yeah. So cameras were placed in the nursery, in the hallway at the top of the stairs, and in the living room area. Tony was also set to be monitored closely to confirm he couldn't possibly be causing these scratches himself. They think he's just carving scratches into his own body. They they just want to make sure. (sighs) Mm -hmm. So he parked himself in a chair, removed any jewelry, and had somebody bring him any food or drink. And if he were to use the bathroom his upper body would be inspected before and after to ensure that there wasn't any funny business going on. They were able to capture an EVP of a low groaning sound, which was the response to Tony calling out to Sally to make her presence known. The audio was reviewed by Rick Wilson, a forensic audio specialist who worked with the CIA and FBI, who concluded that the sound was not electronic, mechanical, or human, and that the frequency was too low to have been produced by a human body. Yikes. Aside from more scratches and some EMF spikes in the nursery, sightings fourth and final documented visit had come to an end. 
So now they got to cleanse this motherfucking home once and for all. Yeah, they got to sage that bitch. The Pikmins were approached by a woman who claimed to have a shaman guide on the other side who offered to rid this home of these pesky beings. The woman began smudging the house, a.k.a. burning sage front to back, top to bottom, before lighting a candle and instructing them to sit around it, join hands, and to not break the circle. No matter what. Mm-hmm. As the process was underway, the woman sensed an older gentleman before feeling the presence of a woman trying to hide. Additionally, she eventually described a frightened young girl in the corner of the nursery, to which she asked if she wanted the young girl to be sent away along with the other two. Deborah was torn. She had a good relationship with this young spirit and felt as if she was literally her actual child and considered that she was, in fact, protecting their baby. Mm-hmm. So they decided to let her stay. The medium continues meditating and saying prayers, mentally moving from room to room. The man didn't understand why he needed to go, but eventually he crossed over. The woman, however, was stubborn and refused to go. As the medium and her shaman got to work on this old biddy, Tony began writhing in pain, strongly gripping Deborah's hand as the medium confirmed that this bitch was angry and began to take it out on Tony again. Oh, my God. Poor Tony. I know, this poor guy. He described a burning sensation across the top of his back, but knew they couldn't break the circle no matter what. Nope. And told them to keep going as he struggled through the pain. After a 10-round, back-and-forth, knock-down, drag-out fight, the old stubborn woman gave in and crossed over. Tony's back was covered with eight deep scratches, some upwards of 12 inches long. Oh, my gosh. But it's done. It's over. This house is clean. So now, while Deborah felt a motherly need to take care of the young spirit known as Sally and found her presence to be fairly benign... Tony had a very different perspective, as you might expect. Yeah. First of all, his overnight work schedule did not mesh well with a newborn baby, especially one that wakes up at all hours and interrupts his unusual sleep patterns. Tony would often be very exhausted, as he would also find time to spend with his wife and baby instead of just working and sleeping. So, it was tough, but he made time. Mm Mm-hmm. Deborah had a previous interest in the paranormal and loved the idea of living in a haunted house, while Tony's Catholic upbringing had him seeing things differently and wasn't as psyched to allow whatever presence was there to coexist with them. She would often try to talk to Tony and suggest that his severe lack of sleep was causing hallucinations instead of seeming to take his concerns seriously. While he viewed these spirits as evil, his wife was eating it up and loved every minute of it. Kind of as I mentioned earlier. Eventually, Tony stopped voicing his frustrations altogether as his concerns were just falling on deaf ears. He internalized everything moving forward and minimized his feelings. Deborah couldn't have possibly been bothered to consider that Tony's emotions were anything more than the result of sleep deprivation. But let me guess, his emotions were caused by something else. Possibly. So instead, she's just like, oh, you're just tired. You're I feel like that's what you would say to me. This and that. You just need sleep. Bah, bah, bah. One weekend afternoon, they spent some time with Taylor, and as previously mentioned, Tony fell asleep on the couch while Deborah sat at the other end watching TV, when suddenly, while still seemingly sleeping, Mm -hmm. he sits up, 
looks her in the face, and in an unusual tone of voice said, He's mine, before Ooh. simply laying back down. Like the so, baby or Tony? Well, I mean... I'd be a, like, all right, we gotta get the fuck out of here. It could be uh, something taking over his body. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Could be the lady talking about the baby, or the lady possessing Tony and talking about the baby, or talking about Tony. Yeah, that's what I just said. Right. I'll give you another trigger here, because there's more violence against animals. Oh, my God. So, the exhaustion began to take a toll on Tony. He described hearing voices. Sometimes it would sound like a room full of people talking, though he couldn't focus or interpret anything specific being said. His feelings toward Deborah became more hateful. He had hateful thoughts when he even looked at her. He had to fight the desire to hurt her. A morning like any other, Deborah left for work and Tony went to make a bowl of cereal. Not sure what kind. As he put the milk away in the fridge, a neighborhood cat had somehow found its way into the house and was drinking from his cereal bowl. What the fuck? Already under immense pressure and dark thoughts, perhaps it was the previously mentioned voices that spoke clearly to him this time, Tony reached towards the knife block on the counter, took a knife... And killed the cat. Oh my gosh. Sounds like Tony's possessed. Tony recalls being proud of it and planned to leave the scene for Deborah, a known lover of cats, to find once she returned home. His follow-up plan would be to murder Deborah when she got home. <gasps> Luckily for both of them, he went upstairs to get ready for the day and went to pick up Taylor from his parents, which seemingly cleared his head. And when he returned home, realized what he had done and cleaned up the kitchen and felt immense regret both for the cat and the thought of trying to murder his wife. Yeah, Tony needs to get out of that house ASAP. Tony explained to her what had happened and what he had felt that morning, and this time, Deborah actually listened instead of trying to explain them away, before realizing that maybe the spirit that she saw as childlike and innocent was something more possessive and evil, and took a hold of Tony and his emotions, as she did not recognize this man as the one she fell in love with. Uh, yeah. I'd say, I'd say so. That'll do it. They finally moved out of the Sally house on October 31st, 1994. On Halloween? Halloween, again. So, one year after he saw Sally, or whomever, in the kitchen, they finally moved. Since leaving the home, Deborah has come to terms with the idea that Sally wasn't the lost spirit of a little girl at all, but possibly a demon. Hmm. When Tony sat up while still snoozing and looked Deborah in the face and proclaimed, he's mine, was it this demonic entity telling her that it had possession of Tony? I, uh, I think As so, we, yeah. I mean, we just said it a few minutes ago, so. Mm-hmm. But possibly that, or saying that the baby belonged to her. Either way, it's not good. Not good. After the Pickmans moved out of the house in 1994, a new family moved in and reported no similar occurrences happening while they occupied the space. Well, that's but, weird. Oh, yeah. But the Pickmans did experience some more activity in their new dwellings, including what else but scratches on poor old Tony. Are you kidding? So the the spirit so, followed them. Yeah. Sounds like an attachment. Mm-hmm. And it's just Tony. Poor Tony, man. I'm saying. So it's suggested that the tenant who moved in after Deborah and Tony did something less than cool. In the basement... Property owner Les Smith discovered a large pentagram drawn on the floor of the basement, where it's believed that they were attempting to summon a demon. Are you kidding? 
the new owners? The new tenants. So it's it's a rental property, but yeah, the new the people who moved in after Ugh. they left. So their stupid ass was kicked to the curb, and the pentagram was painted over with black spray paint. Though it's also reported that a paranormal group who visited the home attempted a ritual to cancel out and close any previous rituals. In 2011, during an investigation by LiveSciFi.tv, a sweater was accidentally discovered in the attic hidden underneath the insulation. That would be a neat vintage find if it weren't covered in blood and what appears to be stab holes. Oh. Oh, yeah. So it was just a bloody sweater chilling in the attic. That's ominous. The sweater was a Sears and Roebuck white sweater made between 1970 and 1996. Puncture holes are present in the front and the back, and large blood stains cover the lower abdomen area, the back, and the right elbow. According to Tim Wood of LiveSciFi.tv, weeks before he had investigated the house, he had a dream that took place in the living room while he was accompanied by an unknown boy. Quote, The boy walked me up the stairs and brought me to the master bedroom closet. Shortly after that, in my dream, I saw the boy wearing a blue sweater, chained to the pipe, and bleeding out from several stab wounds. Could this be a premonition of something that occurred in this house, or could it be just a sweater that was used as a rag? Um, I don't know. After the discovery and the strange dream, luminol was used to test for the presence of blood. Luminol is a chemical that is used in forensic investigations to confirm the presence of blood, and the chemical mixed with any traces of blood will illuminate as a shade of blue when shown in darkness under a black light. Both the dark brown spots on the sweater and the area inside the closet of the master bedroom tested positively for blood. Since then, including the aforementioned LiveSciFi.tv investigation that they have some clips on YouTube... Countless paranormal investigators have passed through the Sally House to conduct their own research. The Sally House was featured on the television show's sightings. In case you forgot, they were there four fucking times. <laughs> I didn't forget. Ghost Adventures, Paranormal Witness, A Haunting, and Death Walker with Nick Groff, formerly of Ghost Adventures. It was also the subject of the made-for-TV movie titled Heartland Ghost. So... If you want to visit the Sally House, you could very well do that. Self-guided tours are available for booking and last around one hour. For about $20 per person, you can walk around the house and learn the history of the location via postings on doors around the home. Or, if that's not good enough, and you need more time in this demonic house, you're in luck. You can also book overnight stays. No thanks. Via visitatchison.com. Check-in time is 3 p.m. and check-out time is never. Oh. That's the office reference. Just kidding. Check-out time is 9 a.m. From November to August, it'll cost $125 per person with a minimum of two because never stay overnight in a demonic house alone. True. And September to October, spooky season, $150 per person. A few of the house rules include... Attendees must be at least 18 years of age, though attendees under 18 must have a parent or guardian present. Like, why would you bring your child? Because they're really cool. They're a cool mom. Not a regular mom. 
Um, the basement is inaccessible. Guests must bring their own sleeping bags, blankets, and pillows, so you cannot sleep in the beds. No cooking. No attempts to cleanse the house. I'm sure they mean spirit-wise and not, like, cleaning. Yeah, I'm sure, too. And most importantly, and I would say this goes for literally anybody, anywhere, at any time, no Ouija boards or seances. Photo, video, and audio recordings are encouraged under the condition that you share anything you might capture. And that's all I got for the Haunted Demonic Sally House. That's spooky. Yeah, it was really spooky. So, so yeah, I'm sorry I didn't look into what they're up to nowadays. I but just wanted to know if he still like has an attachment. I'm, I'm not sure. I can't tell you. Because you said it like followed them to their next place. Yeah. Well, I guess I fucked this all up then. Oh my god, no you didn't, relax. I'm sorry. Relax. In case anyone's listening, that's listening to the first episode that we did, I don't do enough research, so <laughs> that's my bad. Even I'm just though, wondering. Even though we that's had all we... the time in the world to get this fucking done. I mean, you can look it up right now. Yeah, I don't want to. Just pause it. You can do it on your own. Oh, okay. Because where are we at? Where are we at? Yeah, this is taking a while. This one's a, a longest, the longest one so far. Yeah. So, so yeah, no, I'm not going to look it up now. Um, if you guys are interested, you guys can look into that yourselves. Um, so, again, most of my information came from Deborah Pickman's book. Um, and there's more details and more stories in there that I didn't mention, so you should go read that. Um, as far as Tony goes, last I... Well, pretty much the only thing I saw about them is that they were still married, at least as of a few years ago when the article I saw was published so we're still still kicking around okay that's all I got for you this week so so we got Instagram Twitter and Tic Tac Dead Spot Pod all one word and email is deadspotpod at gmail.com so so thanks for coming sorry it took so long if you were waiting for the next episode um yeah so yeah, thanks for listening. And we'll we'll, we'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye. Bye bye.